going to start by reading the book of Ruth together, chapter 1. So if you want to find that in your Bibles. Now, Ruth is a kind of tricky book to find in the Bible. But if you go back to, say, around Joshua and then start flipping forward from there, you'll come across, you'll come across it pretty, pretty directly. I'll give you just a second to find that as I remind you that this is a book that is only three chapters long, which is a little, why it's a little hard to find. And it's a book that is set in the days of the judges, okay? So if you find that the judges is in the Bible in the same vicinity, you can see why now. So let's read this story. And I want to thank Julie Burns for setting the stage so magnificently. Uh, And so listen now to Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I wait until they grew up. No, I'm sorry. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me 
be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went out on until they had come to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she, had, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth to the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So that's the first chapter of the three chapters of the book of Ruth. And it is a story that I call Love's Resolve, and it's really uh, a book that probably begs the question, why would we read it anyway? I mean, what is this book about? Why is it even there? It's such a small book. It's, it's this little story about some people who were living in the time of the judges. Well, what has been discovered over the years since it was originally lived and then written about is that it says a great deal to us about the nature of God, about the condition of our world, and about even the future of the world. This story may be the most significant story in the Old Testament for New Testament believers because it is a picture of our redemption. It is a picture of our deliverance from the certain destruction that would be brought upon us by sin. It even gives us a little hint of how things will be in the last days. So why would we read the book of Ruth? Well, if for no other reason, we would read it because, as Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed and therefore worth understanding and reading. This amazing book has withstood all sorts of attempts over the years to destroy it, and yet this Bible continues to be pretty solid in its basic content over generations and generations and generations. And all the simple and most amazing basic truths that every Christian and every Jew holds dear somehow remain intact in this book, no matter how many ways it's been distorted and been even, like I said, attempts to eradicate it. The Bible is God's book for us. It's 66 books written by about 40 people, and yet it has one author. It is the Spirit of God who directs the writing of this book. And this book doesn't contain anything that isn't of value to us. So why do we read this book? Because it's God's word. And by the way, Julie mentioned that there was one other book in the Bible named for a woman, and that is the book of Esther. I will tell you that my TGIW study, when we begin again in uh, the next months or so, is uh, going to be on the book of Esther. So, so we're doing Ruth for the next few weeks, and then we're going to do Esther in TGIW on Wednesday nights. So these stories are incredibly important to us. 
Uh, this, I said, occurred during the time of the judges, which the book of Judges describes as a time when everybody did what they thought was right in their own mind. The judges era occurs after the death of Joshua. So we did Joshua not long ago, and you recall that they made their way into the promised land. They established themselves as a people of God, a theocracy, we would call it. They made themselves a nation of special people anointed by God, and under God's leadership and under God's disciplines, they were unstoppable. But apparently, after Joshua's death and after a certain time, the people became comfortable, and in their comfort, they began to be less attentive to the discipleship that was so important to being followers of God's way. And so they weren't as careful about obeying the laws of God. They weren't as careful about their habits or even as mindful of God's presence. You know, they got comfortable. And so the nation suffered as a result of being too comfortable. Yes, I'm emphasizing that. And the reason is because this has been the plague that afflicts all Christian people, all people of God throughout all time. Whenever people in a church get comfortable and they just like the way things are going and they just like doing church the way they do it and they become less committed to the disciplines of Christianity and they become less committed to their relationship with God and their church's purpose and God's plan, problems happen. In Israel's case, there was lawlessness. There was anarchy. In Israel's case, there were earthquakes and famines. God was allowing them to suffer so that they would return to God. And even when that didn't work, then God raised up judges like Gideon, like Deborah, like Samson, like Samuel. We think this story probably occurred around the time of Gideon. And it's interesting that during this time of lawlessness and this time of chaos, a man named Elimelech comes up. Elimelech's name means God is my king. And so here's this guy in Israel, which used to be a nation devoted to God, whose name is God is my king. Now, if you notice by listening to Naomi, she just declared one day, I'm not going to be Naomi anymore. I'm going to be Mara. I read a lot of C.S. Lewis, and uh, I finally decided I wanted to learn a little bit more about him. When he was five years old, C.S. Lewis told his family that he was now going to be known as Jackie. And he wasn't kidding around. So he might write C.S. Lewis on all of his manuscripts, but everybody who knew him called him Jack. It's an interesting side note there. He was doing a very biblical thing. So who knows, but Elimelech's name was Carl, you know. And then one day he said, you know, I'm done with you people. You've turned your back on God. God is my king. I'm Elimelech now. And so Carl became Elimelech. Now, that's not scripture. That's Pastor Dan. And then they go to Moab. Now, this was an interesting time in the history of the world because there was chaos all over the world. It seems that when God's people aren't doing God's will, disorder has a way of spilling over into all of the world around them. It's funny how people of God make a big difference in communities and nobody realizes that their influence has such a profound effect. And so, 
The world was kind of messed up. The superpowers were busy with internal struggles. The Democrats and the Republicans were at each other's throats in the big superpower countries. So they weren't really that interested in meddling in the affairs of the smaller countries around them. And for a season, Moab was really prosperous. Moab, and this is God's sense of humor, by the way, was a spinoff of the Israelite nation that was born out of incest. And so this is why the Israelites didn't much care for the Moabites because they saw them as the worst sort of like stepchild. These were children of incest in their nation, in their history. And so nobody thought very highly of the Moabites, but they couldn't deny that there was a blood relation with them just the same. And so it was considered, well, distasteful to throw in your lot with the people of Moab. And yet Elimelech, God is my king, takes his family to Moab, throws in with the Moabites. So much so that his sons marry two Moabite women. It's kind of amazing, really. And so, therefore, you can understand why there was a bit of a stir when Naomi came back to Bethlehem after this departure. And here's the interesting thing. Once they had been prosperous in Bethlehem, and then, as we will learn in the coming weeks, Elimelech's fortunes changed, and he left everything that used to be his to possess when he went to Moab. They went to Moab with nothing. But then they established themselves and were at least comfortable. Might say they had the average Moabite suburban life. And then Elimelech died. And this was bad, but it could have been worse. And then it got worse because the two sons died as well. And now we have three women on their own. Now in those days, and even now in some cultures these days, a woman on her own is in a very desperate situation without a male kinsman to represent her, defend her, and provide for her. They're essentially homeless. A widow would have to do almost anything just to survive. And so they go from this sort of middle-class suburban Moabite life to being destitute, to being desperate, being without any means, without credit, without any benefit that would naturally come if there was a male heir or some male kinsman who could vouch for them and care for them. In their desperate situation, Naomi says, girls, my luck will be a little better if I go back to my home place, to my people. It's a desperate situation, but at least there they still remember me from my youth. And then she realizes that that would put them in a difficult position because they would be foreign women in a place where they have no connections. And so she says, look, you girls know I'm too old to have another child. And if I could find a husband tomorrow, it still wouldn't work out for you. Maybe the best thing for you to do is to stay here in Moab. At least you can go to your mother's house and get some help. And after thinking it over, Orpah says, okay, mom, I guess you're right. Now don't mistake her actions for being evil. She just did what was logical 
even though she had a great deal of love for her mother-in-law. And they cried over this decision, but it made sense. Ruth, on the other hand, says something profound. And I like the King James Version, so I want to read that to you. He says, for whither thou goest, I will go. This is what Ruth said. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. This is profound. By the way, for all of you people who listen to our Revelation Bible Study podcast, those are seven declarations. She makes seven statements to Naomi. You just can't escape that seven thing that happens in the Bible. There are more seven things in the Bible than anybody will ever be able to count. And so, remember that when Naomi told them, you guys would probably be better off if you stayed here in Moab in your mother's homes, so I'm releasing you. Go back to your home. Go back to your gods. Did you hear that? It's implied in that statement that they, by marriage, had assumed the relationship with the gods of their husbands or the god of their husband. In other words, Naomi's releasing them from apparently a covenant that by marriage had bound them to the religion of the Israelite people that they came from. In other words, these Moabite women were practicing the worship of the Jews while they were married to these Jewish men. This is implied because Naomi says, go back to your gods. Now that makes what Ruth says all the more profound because as beautiful as her statement of love, her resolve to love Naomi is beautiful, but it really isn't about Naomi. Do you hear that? Ruth is saying, Naomi, I'm sticking with you. But what she's really saying is, is I believe in your God. I believe you are God's chosen people. I'm going where you're going. I'm done with Moabite gods, and I'm done with the life that I led prior to marrying into your family. I want to be with you and your God till the end of my days. And here's the proof, because number seven says, the Lord do so to me and more if I am not with you also in death. So Ruth is saying, I'm so committed to your God that I know that I will be where you are when we die with your God. You see, this is a resolve that Ruth has declared not only to her mother-in-law, but more importantly, to her mother-in-law's God. It looks like old Elimelech, God is my king, may have rubbed off on Ruth because she's declared in seven ways God is my king. This is what makes Ruth such a remarkable woman. And you know, she might even be a picture of conversion that some of you have experienced. Some people are born into their faith like I was and just grow into it in a very natural way from their very beginning to the moment before you at this moment in time. And, and uh, the faith, the journey is just an ongoing process. But there are others who have conversion stories, true 
remarkable conversions, and they will say with absolute certainty, I can't go back to what was before. There is only what is now, and what is now is with the God, the one God, the only God. The Lord is my king. So at first, this book of Ruth, it looks like a quaint story about the domestic affairs of a little family. Going on a journey. In fact, it's a pretty remarkable story. It would make a great mini-series, you know. I could recommend it to you. Uh, we could binge watch it together on Netflix or something. It would be a really great story. But you know, the longer you look at it, the more you realize there's a whole lot more going on here. There's a story that's really quickly recognized about God's provision. Or what we call providence in church language. It means that God's always ahead of you providing what you need. You know, our, our story about Nathan's episode this week is best understood in the matter of God's providence. We certainly were experienced and seasoned enough to have recognized and been quick to respond to certain signs and indications and certain wisdom that was provided through the medical professionals. But the truth is, is that the reason Nathan's situation turned better rapidly can be attributed to the fact that God always had us with the right person, in the right place, at exactly the right time. Even if it took us from one side of Jasper to the other, and then finally up to Indianapolis, and from one place in a hospital to another place in a hospital, and then back to Jasper and then back to the hospital someday. And so my point is, is that God is always providing for you in ways that we often take for granted. And the story of Ruth and Naomi, it tells you this. It shows you how plainly God is involved. And what's really remarkable is it's always kind of weird and chaotic how it all comes together. And it's so clearly visible in the rearview mirror. But it is nevertheless providence. And this is a sign of God's resolve. And that's what I want to end with today. You see, this story will end as we finish the book of Ruth with a, an image of what we'll call the kinsman redeemer. The one who saves us because only this one can. And doesn't save us because of a birthright, doesn't save us because of a family name, doesn't save us because of our nationality, doesn't save us for anything other than the character that comes from within. The one who will save us, saves us because we love him and trust him. He won't save us because we go through certain motions or religious exercises or any of that. He will save us because we are devoted to him. Because we would look to him and say, whither thou goest, I will go. Whatever you will, I will obey. Whatever people you associate with me, I will associate with them. And if I live, I live. And if I die, I die. This, by the way, is the basis for the Wesleyan covenant prayer that I use every year in the first part of January because it's so beautiful. It's the declaration from the heart of someone who is like Moses, a friend of God, or like David, a man after God's own heart. These people, like Ruth, are people whose lives are not particularly exemplary, but their devotion to God is. 
And this is what God pays attention to. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is more tuned in to your heart for God's spirit than anything you do say or the people you associate with. All of these things can affect your ability to have a healthy relationship with God, but to concentrate on the relationship with God is the thing that God most values. And so God looks for a declaration from you that has the character behind it that is evident in Ruth. And this is where we see in this story a character that creates opportunity for the kinsman redeemer to save. And this is why we focus on it. The last thing I want to say to you about this story is that it is a picture of God. The people were created in God's image and they were given a place called paradise to associate with God and each other and all of creation and everything was wonderful and they had only to obey God's will about a certain tree, but they disobeyed God, they distrusted God, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and then as a response to that necessary casting out, God using shed blood covers their sin and then God is with them always. Even as throughout time, even as in the time of judges, when they are not a very good bunch of people, God never totally abandons them. In the time of judges, they were really out of hand, but God would raise up a judge every now and again. They would eventually seek a king and God would raise up a king and they would eventually disobey and then God would draw them back again. Sort of like us parents, when you have a two-year-old throwing a tantrum, best thing to do is just stand back and wait. It'll be over when it's over. And then we'll say, are you done? And then we give direction and correction and keep moving forward. This is how God has treated us. And the answer, the question that has to be asked rather is why? Why would God do this? Why wouldn't God just say, I'm done with this? I don't need this. I can wipe the slate clean and do it better next time. But God doesn't. Because for some reason, God has made the same declaration about us that Ruth has made about God. Whither thou goest, I will go. God says, where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And I will be your God and their God. And when you die, I will be there. And while you live, I will be there. This is an eternal commitment that God has made. It doesn't make any sense, but it is God's commitment nonetheless. Therefore, it is an unbreakable bond that we can live in blessing for the rest of our days and into our eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Change our nature. Let our character be like that of Ruth, so that whether thou goest, we will go. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.